Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. My wife grew up in and around New York City, and uh, when she was really young, Times Square was not a place you would probably think of as a great place to go as a tourist, just because it was full of crime, a um, lot of open-air drug trafficking, a lot of strip clubs, things like this, and probably early 90s, it really started to change, mid-90s, it becomes this tourist attraction. So like Carson Daly's total request live every day on MTV is really excited to be in Times Square. And so uh, by the time that Rudy Giuliani, who was uh, the mayor of New York City during this revivification of Manhattan, by the time he's uh, candidating for higher office, he's like, hey America, look at what I did to Times Square. Um, if I can do this here, what couldn't I do everywhere? I'm, I'm, I'm laying it on a little thick. But he, this was a big part of his campaigning for higher office. And um, the truth is he was there when like some rezoning happened. And he was there when some eminent domain stuff happened. And he kind of brought a kind of transformation, but it's a mistake. And it's really a mistake to think about this in any major city. It's a mistake to think that all those undesirable elements just go away because you clean up one part of the city. It just went somewhere else. And it famously just like went new places. These other businesses, these other aspects of city life that they didn't want to be like, you know, seven blocks from Penn Station or something like that. Getting somewhere with the kingdom of God. Jesus' main topic of preaching is how he brings the kingdom of God on earth in a transformative way. And the kingdom of God coming and making things new is not about just moving stuff in your life around to less visible places. It's not about moving things around in our world to less visible places, although it does tend to be what we do to act religious. 
actually not what Jesus came to bring. He came to bring something totally and utterly new. And we use these words like revitalization, revivification. Um, we use words like renaissance. And all of these things mean new life or new birth. And most of the time, they're not at all in the ways that we use them. It's just moving stuff around. Today, we see Jesus encountering a man by saying to him, if you want to know anything about the kingdom of God, and certainly if you want to enter the kingdom of God and be a part of it, you cannot just move things around in your life, and you can't just add a few things to your life. It requires nothing less than, than something dead coming alive. He calls it the new birth. Jesus says he needs to be reborn. We're in a series in the Gospel of John watching how Jesus interacts with people who welcome them, uh, how he interaction, interacts with people in order to welcome them into the kingdom of God. And this week, Jesus is speaking these words about new birth to a man named Nicodemus. If you're not familiar with this figure, we get a brief intro to him in the very first verses of John 3. I'll read them again, verses 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, just pausing there for a second, a ruler of the Jews meant that he was a type of religious ruler. There was a Jewish religious ruling party that was, think of it as multi-denominational, and they would rule on religious and spiritual matters. This wasn't a civil rule, but he was a ruler of sorts, and he had tons of esteem among the people. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these things sign, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Um, it seems like he's buttering up Jesus a little bit. You're awesome, Jesus. Just want you to know, I think you're great. I'm a really big fan. He comes to them at night, though, and for millennia now, scholars have said, don't miss that. Don't miss that he comes at night. He's a Pharisee, which means he was part of the more conservative Jewish party of the day. Ju Judaism was very multi-form in Jesus' world of the first century. Um, this was the, the, the moralistic party, or to put a better spin on it, they were the ones who really believed that by their steering Israel back towards a really, really uh, fairly rigid and uber faithful, like never, never fail, don't break any commandment ever or else, type of religion that God would actually restore uh, the fullness of King David's era of Israel to, to their day in Israel. So the Pharisees were a very moralistic sect. And so this man thought of himself as a scholar, as a ruler he was, also as somebody who was really morally pure, and he comes to Jesus, and he must have sensed some real power in this guy. But he was also scared enough that he didn't want to uh, lose face among his home team, but he comes to him at night. And he's buttering up Jesus, and Jesus, before he even gets going, says, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Okay. So Jesus basically starts with Nicodemus by saying, 
if you want to learn about the spiritual life from me, if you see anything in me, my teaching or the power of my signs, if you want to learn anything about the spiritual life from me, let's start at the very beginning. Put your credentials aside. Let's start at the very beginning. Let's start at birth. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus doesn't get us. It doesn't get Jesus' meaning. I don't think we necessarily would either. I'm going to give you three points. And uh, these points are from a combination of other pastors that I've, that I've read on on this issue for, for a number of years. One is Steve Smallman, who some people in this room know, who wrote a wonderful book on this chapter called The Spiritual Birth Line, and is a personal mentor. Um, and another guy is a pastor named Richard Phillips, who also ministered in Philadelphia for a long time. Three points. What in the world does Jesus mean when he says you must be born again? First, it's necessary. The new birth is necessary. Secondly, the new birth is a work of God. And thirdly, the new birth is known by its effect. I wish it was like really catchy, like they were all started with the same letter or something, but they don't. Um, it's necessary, it's a work of God, and you know it by its effect. First, it's necessary. To see the kingdom of God, you have to be reborn. For a guy like Nicodemus, he needs to know what will not help him to see the kingdom. What won't be, at least in of itself, sufficient to see the kingdom. Superficial change, right? We've already been here. Moving stuff around to less visible areas of your life. It won't work. It won't actually help. Actually, if there's anything that will do more harm, I don't know. Um, just It's because it's actually lying to self. This isn't my life anymore. It absolutely is. We're just kind of hiding it. Superficial change won't work. Temporary religious excitement won't work. Just grasping new ideas will not work. Personal moral striving in of itself will not help. I'll give you a quote from uh, Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle, 19th century. The new birth is a thorough change of heart, a thorough change of will, a thorough change of character. It is a resurrection. It is a new creation. It is a passing from death to life. It is the implanting in our dead hearts of a new principle from above. Think of it this way. You do not give birth to yourself. Neither can you just make yourself spiritually alive. One thing that this does, and this is a very important thing that, it, that this does, and the Apostle Paul gets into this in Ephesians 2 more clearly than here, but it's very much at the heart of this passage too. One thing that this does, if you understand that coming to Christ Entering the kingdom of God is a new birth, is it removes any possibility of boasting. Why are you here this morning? If you're a Christian, why are you a Christian? Is it because you're just a little bit better? Is it because you were just a little bit more perceptive? You were just a little bit more insightful? Your heart was just a little less hard than the other person's. What does that mean? You're just a little bit better. The answer is No. I love this illustration. This is from John Zoll. He says, imagine you uh, are on an ocean liner and you uh, are just, for some reason, playing on the edge and you fall off into the water. 
and uh, you can't swim, you're sinking, and somebody throws a life preserver, and it, it just lands right next to you, and you grab it, and you get pulled in on the life preserver, they pull you up, you're back on the deck now of the cruise ship, and uh, everybody crowds around you, and they're like, wow, are you okay? And like, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Did you see how I grabbed that life preserver? Did you see, like, the dexterity in my wrists when I just went like that and grabbed it? And it's like, man, I wasn't letting that thing go. Um, I did a pretty good job, didn't I? Um, there's, there's no possibility of ever having, now hear me, the slightest whiff of that when it comes to understanding how it is that we come to be near God. No more than you give birth to yourself can you say, it's on me that the spiritual lights came on and I'm one with God in Christ. It just doesn't work that way. It's it has to happen if you are to have any hope. It's necessary. That's the first thing. Secondly, it's a work of God. This is really inseparable from that first point. It's a work of God. Jesus is really emphasizing the passive nature of this. Not to say there's no action on our part at all. We're going to get there. But he does emphasize the passive aspect here. We are not the ones who do the birthing. Verse 5. Jesus says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you. That means, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. When Jesus says, truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born, okay, born again, which other translations, by the way, translate from above. The Greek word uh, intentionally means both, from above and again. Now he says you have to be born of water and the spirit. Well, which is it? I mean, that seems like a lot of births. Again, above, water, spirit. Uh, from uh, at least the second century, we have the church interpreting this as referring to baptism in part. Um, water and the spirit. Of course, uh, baptism is the sacrament that is never intended to be only external ever, but to also have that heart root, right? Water and the spirit also seems to symbolize uh, there are always two things going on when somebody comes to saving faith in Jesus. One is dealing with your past and the other is dealing with your future. Now, now stay with me here. Think of water as this. You're forgiven, washed away. Your sins are washed away. What did you do last night? What did you do last year? What did you do when you were younger? All things can be forgiven in Christ, washed away. But the spirit is the principle of new life as well. It's not like when you come to Christ, it's like, all right, you got a clean slate now. Don't mess it up. Because if you do, there's not any hope for you at all. No. The spirit is about your future. Water and the spirit you're baptized in. The spirit that gives new life. The spirit that makes you want to be near God. The spirit that makes you want to cry out to him ever the spirit that makes you, that kindles mysteriously any kind of desire to do what he says. Water and the spirit. Verse 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus is saying here, and I think this is a useful, uh, as we're going from like talking mainly to people who 
in this passage. Nicodemus is somebody who needs to come to faith. I think there's a really good principle here for people who would deign to talk to other people about their faith. Talk to people about the Jesus that you know. And this is a really important principle. Jesus says, what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in the letter of 1 Corinthians. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What Paul and Jesus are saying is that you cannot, by natural, reasonable principles alone, now hear me say alone, just get people in a chain of arguments that they assent to that leads them to a place where they will certainly believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because that which is of flesh is flesh, and that which is of spirit is spirit. There's a blockage, and you know what this is about. How many people in your life have you experienced, let's say, just over the last few years, the last few crazy years, where you said, I just can't get through? Maybe I, I really think I'm talking about facts here. I really think I'm talking about majority human, human experience here. I really think that I'm coming from a reasonable position, but you would think that I am an alien to talk to this person who has no idea how to understand my position. Actually, we all have these experiences, and it's not unique to the last two and a half years, and it's not just an MSNBC and Fox News thing, believe it or not. It is a very deeply human thing. How do you come to share on a heart level commitments, loves, faith? The spirit. The spirit. What does this mean for discussing spiritual things with others? I don't know if you ever saw the show 30 Rock, but there's this one episode where uh, Tina Fey's character is attracted to a guy and she finds out that he's a Christian. And, and when she finds out he's a Christian, she says, oh no, does this mean that on Saturdays we have to go to Central Park and evangelize rollerbladers? And um, <laughs> I love that image because it's like people rollerblading and you're like, no, stop. And you're like stopping people rolling by and grabbing them so you can yell to them about the faith. It does not mean never talk about spiritual things. It doesn't mean that at all. What does it mean? It means when you commend the faith to someone else, hear this, truly, truly. You are watching for what God is already doing. Does that make sense? Do you see that in these verses? What's from the flesh is the flesh. What's from the spirit is the spirit. What makes alive the Holy Spirit of God, not you, and not, not your amazingly intelligent arguments. This is also beautiful because people who are not as smart of you, as you are better evangelists than you. Why? Because they don't think they're better than anybody. They definitely don't think they're smarter than anybody. And they're watching for what God is already doing, which on some level is irresistible. And they're just teaming up with it. That's the principle of sharing your faith with anyone ever. You're watching for what God is already doing, and he's often doing something with people right in your face. What is he already doing? I'll stop there. I want to say more. I'll stop. Point three. First, it's necessary. Secondly, it's a work of God. Thirdly, it's revealed by its effects. This is really simple and beautiful, too. Verse eight. 
The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Think of a hurricane. You never see the wind, but you see the wind throwing things around. And it's totally a hurricane. You're not going to get an argument about that. I can't stand still. There's a hurricane uh, blowing me over. Really? Point to the air and show me. Nothing works like this. But God is moving all the time. And often it's obvious. The spirit goes wherever it wants. There's no wall that's too impenetrable. He's working all the time. The last three people I talked to who came to faith recently, like in the last two, three years, I've had a few of these conversations recently, all uh, adults, all in their, this happened in their late 20s or early 30s, which is really interesting as well, because when I talk to experts in campus ministry, which I, I mean, we've we talked about campus ministry last week, they're always saying things like, you know, there's something about when kids get out of college or when adults get out of college, it's just harder to reach them. And maybe that's true. But I've met a lot of people who have come to faith in their late 20s and early 30s. And I'll just give you their stories without their names. One, it was a guy just talking to his wife and they knew a couple that had faith in Jesus. And they said, we've never really thought about what we want to do there. And they started going to Langhorne Presbyterian Church in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. And he was raised on Haggard Street, not a mile from here. And he went to uh, Kensington High School for a while, then ended up graduating from North Catholic, and uh, is actually studying to be a pastor. And it was like, for him, it was like um, thawing ice and snow that, like, you know, it warms up, the sun's warming it up, you know, the water starts trickling down. But then all at once, like on a, on a, on a pitched roof, just flops down. Another guy, it was just, uh, he said, I just knew I needed something in my life when I passed that church and I went in. That happens. Don't make us all feel like superheroes just because we showed up to church today. But it's, it's a thing. Our neighbors are wondering, is there a path for my life that's worth following? And your presence in community really makes a difference with that. This other guy had a close friend, similar to the first guy. All these three happened to be men. And said, you know what? I just realized a lot of the people, I was bona fide atheist five years ago. And very slowly, it's a long gestation period. Wouldn't know exactly when he was born again. But he said, over the course of years, I just realized a lot of the people I respect the most are humble Christians, and then began taking those steps. And for each one of them, it's pretty unmistakable. Steve Smallman quote, in a way that is as mysterious as the blowing of the wind, God uses inadequate people as part of the accomplishment of his great work of causing the kingdom to come. So, three points. It's necessary. It's God's work. It's known by its effects. Let me, let me end like this. Uh, Nicodemus, in verse 9, asks Jesus a final question. He just says, I wonder what was going on in his heart. He says, how can these things be? Everything that I just shared with you, everything that Jesus just said that we read off the page. 
He takes it all in and he says, I don't get it, and how is it possible? And after a few humbling questions back, are you really a teacher of Israel and you don't know? Jesus doesn't poke everybody in the eye. He didn't do it to Nathaniel, who, who was kind of snarky last week when we saw him in John 1. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus, Jesus is actually, actually, I like you. You're honest. I think he's getting at some of Nicodemus's pretense. You've got every credential and you're coming to me at night and you're buttering me up. Are you really a teacher of Israel or what? After all that, Jesus gives him two answers in response to his question, how can these things be? Two answers. First, these things be because Christ died for us. I'll show you where I get that out of these verses. In verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What does that mean? If you're not particularly familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures in our Bible, uh, in Numbers 21, the fourth book of the Bible, there's a story about snakes biting the Israelites in the wilderness. And And they caused many of them to die. And they realized that this was the judgment of God. So the people of Israel asked Moses to intercede with God for his help. Moses did. And in response, God told Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Very similar to that healthcare symbol. A bronze snake and put it on a pole. And whenever someone was bitten, all they needed to do was look upon the bronze snake and they would live. Just look and live. Look and have new life. According to Jesus, this event symbolized his mission to remedy our need. Like the Israelites, we've sinned, and the punishment for sin is the curse of death. But Jesus entered the world to be lifted up on the cross and bear the curse our sins deserve. The way of salvation, then, is not by self-improvement or human striving, Salvation comes by looking to the crucified Christ in faith to be forgiven and live. Look and live. Look and receive new life. There are two musts in John 3. Jesus said, you must be born again in verse 7. And here he adds, the Son of Man must be lifted up. These two musts go together. Christ died for our sins so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. How can these things be? Because Christ died for us. And here's the second reason. It's actually the, the primary reason. The foundational reason. Because God loves the world. That's what Carol read earlier. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The reason Christ entered the world and was lifted up on the cross for our salvation is because of the love of God the Father who sent him. So, what do you do with all this? Um, Well, there's something to receive that you can't give as a gift to yourself. There's something you have to receive from above. This is from Charles Spurgeon on this passage. He says, Do you have any feeling right now that maybe you love God? Anything in your heart? Do you have any feeling now that you love God? Do you have any feeling right now that you seek to please him in any way? 
are new spiritual realities becoming realities to you. Then the blood of Jesus is becoming your only trust, maybe. Do you desire to be made holy, even as God is holy? If there's any of that in you, however feeble it may be, though it is only like the life of a newborn child, you are born again and you may rejoice in that blessed fact. This is how it starts, the Spirit of God working in you. And what's left for you to do, there is actually something for you to do. Jesus says, believe. So is it God's birthing me again, or is it me believing? Yes. Yes. It cannot possibly happen unless God is birthing something in you that you can't birth for yourself. And you must believe. Believe how? Like abstractly? Well, yeah, there's information you need. I've just been talking about it. But there's also... A confident clinging of the heart. I put Jesus. All of my eggs are in the Jesus basket. I am not like a solid rock in terms of my faith, but Jesus is it. And someday that faith, some days that faith wavers, but I choose Jesus. I cling to him. I am in his way. I say yes to Jesus. That is Christian believing. And that's an invitation. And it's urgent. It's urgent. There's that line should not perish. He did this so that we would not perish. Just think, if you have to be made spiritually alive, that means you're not yet living until that birthing happens, the birthing and believing, the looking and living. Be reconciled to God. If he's working in you, you can have a conversation today to take the next step in your relationship with him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.